0: Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one
1: dollar at a time, with your host, Janine Intero.
2: Sarah. Hi, Janine. How are you?
1: Good. How are you doing?
2: Good. I'm excited that we have a guest on the podcast today, Lee Stevens. Welcome. Thank you for having
0: me. This is my first podcast.
2: Oh, we're so excited to have you. Um, And today we're going to actually be talking about universal basic income again. Lee works for Vibrant Calgary. Vibrant Communities, Calgary. Sorry, Vibrant Communities, Calgary. I (laughs) feel like there's so many Cs and letters in that. Um, But Lee, why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself and what
0: the organization does? Absolutely. Um, I'm a social worker. I've been uh, working as a social worker in Calgary until about um, since uh, about 2006. And then in 2017, I started working at Vibrant Communities Calgary, and I work there as a policy and research specialist. Uh, so Vibrant Communities Calgary, we work to make poverty history in Calgary. Uh, so we're the stewards of Calgary's poverty reduction strategy enough for all. Uh, we're a small staff team, there's only six of us. Um, so our job is really to just be accountable to make sure that that strategy gets implemented. Um, So we've been doing that. VCC has been doing it since 2015. Um, So what we do is we have champions who are actually the groups and the organizations that are actually reducing poverty in our city. And we do our best to make sure that their work is aligned. Uh, We help to create a a platform so that they can meet each other and um, get aligned with the strategy, because what Enough for All is really about is the root causes of poverty. So it's um, it's different than just mitigating the symptoms of poverty, you know, like a lot of charities, like food banks and homeless shelters are great and they help people in the moment, um, but they're not doing anything to, to address the root causes. Um, so that's where Enough for All comes in and says, um, you know, we need systemic changes to make sure that there is no poverty. Um, so that's one of the reasons why it's very unique from my other jobs as a social worker and i'm very passionate about it and um, in a lot of ways it doesn't feel like work Um, it's very interesting it's very unique no day is the same i guess that's the best way for me to explain it Mm -hmm.
2: that's wonderful we're so excited to have you and i'm excited to dive right in and let's actually um talk about what you just said so those systemic causes of poverty, are you able to walk
0: us through a couple? Sure, so Enough for All defines poverty as more than just about a lack of income. Certainly income is a a big important piece of reducing poverty, is making sure that everyone has enough income to meet their basic needs. Um, but that's only one lever of change. So we have actually 10 levers of change in the strategy. Um, I won't go through them all, but there are things like early learning and care, making sure that people have access to a decent education, making sure that people have access to appropriate healthcare, mental health care, um, financial empowerment, to make sure that people have a bank account and that they, have ac- they, they are able to build assets and get ahead. Um, Adult literacy is another one, Um, uh, we have a justice sector uh, lever of change to make sure and it's a group of people that are making sure that the justice system does not cause or contribute to poverty and they're also working to make sure that everyone has access to justice services. So that's just an example of what we would define as the root causes of poverty.
2: That's really interesting. Um, and kind of one area that we wanted to dive into, obviously that's top of mind is universal basic income. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while we're recording this on October 4th, obviously, um, at this point, um, CERB has been, um, or CERB has ended and it's complete now. And um, so I'm curious just to get your opinion on how CERB was kind of rolled out and, um, who it targeted. And do you think that that was a good strategy moving forward into a universal basic income?
0: Yeah, maybe um, we've talked about this a lot. So um, Basic Income Calgary is um, the group of people that are leading our, our income lever of change. Um, And then we also have formed an Alberta basic income network. So we've been having these conversations regularly about the CERB and, you know, it is a basic income like program. Um, One thing that I want to just let everyone know is that the CERB was rolled out in a crisis. And this is not the way we would want a basic income program to be rolled out. It wasn't well thought out and it's not sustainable. Um, The CERB is is costing us a lot of money and it's... um, because it was rolled out in a crisis, it's not something that could be permanent. Um, So what we want is we want a well thought out basic income program that is permanent. Um, But the CERB was great for what it was. It saved lives. Um, It prevented people from having to work and put themselves at risk if they were at risk of getting sick. Um, It put food on the table and enabled people to pay their bills. Um, So we think the CERB is great. one thing about basic income I would maybe touch on too is we actually prefer the term uh, basic income guarantee um, because like, like the CERB, uh, we want it to be uh, targeted. So not means tested, um, but it would be income tested. I'll maybe stop there.
1: Yeah, can I just jump in because I feel like I have a good understanding of what means testing is, but Mm -hmm. I know a lot of folks don't so can you give us an overview of what means testing is and why you've pivoted away from that.
0: Yeah, so basically, the best part about basic income is that it's delivered unconditionally so it's it's money from the government sent to individuals so that they can meet their basic needs. So if you do your taxes every year and your income falls below a certain threshold, you would get the basic income automatically. That's sort of the idea of it. So it's very simple. You know, you don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops like our current income support system. You know, you just have to do your taxes. And then um, what it does is a basic income provides that floor so that no one is below a certain income, which means that everyone has the income to meet their basic needs.
1: Very cool. Very cool, and my understanding is now, like say in Calgary, you want to get the the low income transit pass, you have to get on down there somehow and prove that you're low income, even if you have already filed your taxes, you have to prove that you're still low income, is that the case for most of these programs?
0: (sighs) So the low income transit pass, so that would be uh, the fair entry program through the city of Calgary. Um, and yes, you you do have to have to prove that you are low income. There's three different tiers with that low income pass. So there's a tier A, which means if you're making less than $12,000 a year, you approve, you get approved for the lowest uh, transit pass. It's only $5 a month, which is excellent because, I mean, can you imagine trying to survive on $12,000 a year? It's it's insane. Um, and actually, 66,000 people have already applied for that. So just to give you an idea of how many people in Calgary are, are actually making that low of money, that's that's a true figure. Um, so yeah, they do have to go down to the city. There's a few different spots in the city where you can go to apply for the pass. I think the city of Calgary is trying to make it a little bit more accessible. Um, so I haven't checked back on that, but I but I hope that they make it more accessible um yeah that's just one example of of hoops that people have to jump through and um income support is is really um the one that gets me quite upset because um you know you have to be so completely destitute before you actually qualify for income support it's ridiculous
1: wow how how um how much do you have to earn monthly or or annually to be able to qualify
0: um you have to have less than under $1,000 in the bank, um, you can't really have any assets like RRSPs. Like they really want you to liquidate kind of all your assets before you actually qualify. And um, for instance, the, the amount you get is um, it's only about a quarter of the poverty line. It's, it's, it's nowhere near enough to meet, to meet your basic needs. So a single person who's expected to work on income support gets about $745 a month. And that is supposed to pay for your food, your shelter, your personal needs, your medical needs. I mean, it, it's impossible. I, I don't even think $745 actually won't even, it wouldn't even pay rent for you. So, um, and then by that point, you've already liquidated all your assets or you wouldn't even qualify for the program. So you have nothing to fall back on. And then actually the clawback rate, when you, when you do f- eventually find a job, let's say you find a part-time job, you can only earn $230 a month before your benefits start getting clawed back 75 cents on the dollar. So we actually refer to that as the welfare wall. And um, we're actually advocating right now that the government of Alberta make some adjustments to enable people to earn a little bit more money so that they can at least earn enough through employment, a mix of employment and income support to reach the poverty line before they start clawing those benefits back.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've talked a lot on the podcast about the importance of having an emergency fund, the importance of having some savings. um, And... I, I know that on $745 a month, even if a financial institution was going to look at you for something like a line of credit, um, while you try to build up your savings or emergency funds, you're probably not going to qualify. So the way um, you've described it, I really don't think we're giving anybody a leg up. So I can see why um, you would deem that a welfare wall.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And so what is the what is the poverty line that you guys work with when you when you mention that is it is it for Calgary is it for Alberta is
0: it for Canada it's for Calgary and what's really cool is in 2018 Canada the government of Canada established a national poverty line and so it's so right so right now there's a few different poverty measures there's a the low income cutoff there's the low income measure and there was the market basket measure and everyone was using all these different measures to try and figure out How many people were living in poverty? And poverty advocates like VCC have been saying, you know, can we just stick to one measure so that we can actually get on the same page and have some apples to apples comparisons? And the government of Canada finally said, okay, we're going to establish one measure and we're going to measure poverty using this one measure going forward. And they decided on the market basket measure. And what's cool is that that measure is very specific. It can, folk calgary has its own measure whereas you know the low income measure it's for all of alberta for instance um so there's six different mbm regions in alberta so if you live in edmonton there's a different poverty line if you live in a community with over 100,000 people in alberta it's a different poverty line so it's very specific so though so i'll give so in calgary um, they just came out with a 2018 base so, a family of four making less than forty eight thousand dollars a year is considered living in poverty. so a, so so for a single person, that's about twenty four thousand dollars a year. So that's about eighteen hundred dollars a month.
2: And that's kind of r- right around where you know Serb was kicking in right yep that eight two I mean we always heard eighteen hundred to two thousand I know Serb was yeah. two thousand, but
0: yeah. So that was great because that's, you know, people are made, the CERB gave them enough to meet their minimum basic needs. And we know from studies that they're going to be a lot healthier, (laughs) Um, you know, and unfortunately we won't know the long term effects of CERB because it was so temporary, but there's been so many basic income pilots where people, you know, for instance, in Ontario, even though it was only two years, the Ontario pilot, um, the evaluators came out with some really interesting outcomes about how people's health improved, and and uh, they were able to go back to school and get retrained, and like all these wonderful things happened.
1: So, could you maybe tell us a little bit more about what is the difference between a living wage and um, a, a universal basic income guarantee, and and do they have crossover? How do they kind of work together,
0: or not? Sure. So. The living wage is the minimum wage. Uh, The living wage is the amount that an employer would need to pay in order for their employee to meet uh, a modest standard of living. So it might help for me to explain the difference between the minimum wage versus the living wage. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Minimum wages are legislated by the provincial government and they're set so that no employer can pay below the legal minimum wage. The living wage is a proxy for the cost of living in any given community. It's not an arbitrary number. It's determined by calculating average expenses, taxes and government transfers for a given household. So the living wage considers the basic needs of an average family of four with two working parents and two children, plus additional costs we all incur from time to time uh, to allow for the family to fully participate, thrive and build their human potential. And you said that
2: includes um like things they would qualify for like the let's say like the child tax benefit or those yeah types of things.
0: so so the formula that we use to calculate the living wage for calgary um so we calculate the the annual family expenses so we include food clothing shelter transportation utilities bank fees um, a cell phone childcare, health premiums school fees Parent education, um, furnishing supplies for the house, and then we have contingency, two-month contingency, that emergency fund that you were talking about, Janine, that everyone needs to have. So we include that in the living wage calculation because we think that people need that. That's very important. Um, So we get the annual family expenses in 2018. was about $66,000 a year. So that's the income that they would need from employment. And is that, sorry, before or after tax? So we add, and then we add government transfers. Yeah. And then we minus premiums and taxes.
2: Fantastic. That sounds like a very well thought out calculation. Yeah,
0: it is very well thought out. And there's actually a framework. There's a Canada living wage framework because other provinces and cities in Canada are doing this as well. So we try to use the same methodology for national consistency. Yep. And so what is the living wage in in Calgary? So in 2018, it was $16.45 an hour. Um, Some government benefits have changed. The cost of living we expect will go up a bit more. So I'm actually working on the living wage for Calgary right now. And I'm going to guess, oh, and this might come back to bite me, but I'm going to guess it's going to be around $20 an hour. For 2020? Yeah. I don't have it done yet, but that's my inkling. Well, we won't hold you to it. But. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think it's going to be about $20 an hour. Why do you think it's going up that much in two years? Um, part of the reason is that we, we were using an old, so we use the market basket measure to determine the costs for shelter, food, transportation, and a few other expenses. But we were using the old, we were using costs from 2008 And then we are accounting for um, the consumer price index, but it wasn't very accurate. And then Statistics Canada released 2018 costs for food, clothing, shelter, transportation. So we're gonna be using those new costs in our new calculation. And I expect that uh, the cost of living will go up. So things are just gonna start, I think things are just going to be costing more and it'll be a more accurate reflection of what things actually cost. And um, the change in the provincial government some, for instance, the climate change rebate, you know, we're not getting that anymore, because the UCP got rid of that. So a few government benefits are going to change. And uh, I think that's going to result in a higher uh, living wage for Calgary.
1: I can see as this interview goes on, I'm just going to start to get like more and more angry because now I'm thinking about how many um, food providers, um, in terms of grocery stores have profited off of the pandemic. And how much the the basket of goods has has gone up, and then also the removal of benefits. I'm starting to get a little heated, so we'll yep. see how the rest of this goes.
0: <laughs> Speaking of grocery stores, what got me heated was remember the Hero Pay top up that the grocery stores gave their workers for working mm-hmm. in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. They rolled that back in July.
1: Yeah, and still paid dividends. Ugh. Like I just. I don't know how callous you have to be I to be to, to be working on, um, you know, you just looking at the line item even of, of the wage cost and just saying like, no, yeah. Yeah. We, we really need this extra $2 an hour from these people.
0: Yeah. And what's interesting is when we do get the living wage, it's going to be quite a bit higher probably than it. Like right now it's like sixteen forty-five is not far off from the minimum wage, which is great. Like that's what we wanna see. We wanna see the minimum wage as close as possible to a living wage. Um, unfortunately, I think that the gap is gonna widen this year. And um, that's unfortunate because a lot of those grocery store workers are probably still making you know, $15, $16 an hour. And what we know is that, that they actually need more than that in order to, to live a modest life in Calgary. And so that's unfortunate. And then they got they get a top up for working in a pandemic for putting their lives at risk. And then they rolled it back. That's so ridiculous. That's me going. I know.
1: So um, now that we're talking about minimum wage and living wage, one of the criticisms criticisms that we hear Hmm. is that this minimum wage increase or doing these kinds of calculations um, and forcing employers to adhere to this yeah. would create job loss. Yeah. Um, is this true? What are your feelings?
0: I haven't found it to be true in any jurisdiction where they've raised the minimum wage. And this is what's interesting is that the, the people that claim this, I, I don't think they've ever been able to prove that it has actually resulted in job loss. I only saw one study in Seattle because when Seattle raised their minimum wage, and I can't remember from what to what, but there was a lot of um, business owners that were claiming that, you know, jobs are going to be lost because of this. And it never ended up being true. And there's actually a really credible study um, two or three years after they raised the minimum wage that really debunked all of that. And unfortunately, of course, I forgot the name of the study. But anyway, there's a study in Seattle that has debunked this. And um, my other response is that I haven't heard a credible study that has proved otherwise.
1: Yeah, uh, me neither. Um, honestly, I don't know where that logic even plays out because mm-hmm. you would think, and and we know, that um, folks that earn less need to spend all that money and put it back into especially the local economies. So when you have more churn in, in yep. terms of dollars, this increase allows for more spending which allows for more jobs
0: yeah 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 consumers consumers keep the the economy going yeah i thought it was the billionaires no no <laughs> the, the the workers keep the economy going and therefore create jobs
2: yeah i guess you always hear examples like um when the minimum wage was being increased or whatever to 15 dollars. even my husband said like he was at his like barber shop and they like Sent this letter or passed this letter around to everyone that was like, We're gonna have to like cut staff's hours because we have to pay them more. And he was like, Yeah, I'm not going back to that place again. But, um, I think you just kind of hear all this like hearsay in some of those uh, like service industry jobs,
0: yeah. And yeah, that's unfortunate. And this is why I think advocacy around the living wage is so important because it's like. People need more than $15 and even like you're complaining about $15. And then when you actually calculate how much a family or a single person needs to needs to earn to live in this city, um, $15, even $15 an hour doesn't cut it. So how, how are you being a responsible employer and you're advocating to pay your workers less than what they actually need to survive on and live in this city?
1: Yeah. And I think we've had, um, some similar criticisms of CERB and saying, you know, I can't, business owners saying they can't hire back and those kind of things without having, you know, a broad discussion of how uh, employers are actually employing their employees and how many jobs these folks need to have because they're cutting hours, because this is um, in some ways forced labor. And there's a mentality of just, if you just work more hours, if you just work harder, eventually you'll be able to eat um, without saying well why don't we just feed people um, and then uh, create jobs and uh, productivity right so yes. it's um it's challenging me for challenging for me to get into that mentality and then try to, <laughs> to try to reframe it
0: I know and um, so I think There's a survey by the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Um, I think that's what got everyone going about the survey. Everyone keeps referring to the survey, um, which was actually, um, it wasn't a survey of workers, it was a survey of business owners and their perceptions of why their workers were not returning to work. And so it was the business owners that claimed that it was because of the CERB. Um, but it's really too bad that they didn't survey the actual workers, because I think that you would get some different results. I think you would find that people, child care would be a big one mm-hmm. and safety. Mm-hmm. And frankly, if they're getting more money on the CERB than they were working for you, that just goes to show how low your wages were. Um, I, fr- I frequently get into fights with people on Twitter about that. So yeah. I don't think it's a bad thing that employers have to raise their wages and improve their working dish conditions to attract workers. You know, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It, it really <laughs> bothers
2: me, especially here in Alberta. I find that there's this mindset that we like need to protect the businesses at like the cost of the worker.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. I don't know where that came from, but. I don't either. And I, it's too bad that there's that um, polarization of like worker versus business owner like it doesn't have to be that way and i yeah i'm it's it's really unfortunate
1: definitely um one of the other criticisms that we hear broadly is um you know how much is this going to cost but before we get into that i was wondering if you had any insights on how much does poverty cost us and let's you know frame it as a taxpayer um or however you would like you know how much does um having people in our society living in poverty cost us annually now if you have any insights on that
0: uh i do uh so vcc actually did a study on this in 2012 called poverty costs and um so according to our calculations poverty costs alberta 7.1 to 9.5 billion dollars every single year holy crap yeah
1: billion with a b yeah
0: that's a lot of
2: dollars. And so, when when you dive into that, I guess I'm curious what makes up the bit. My I have a guess in my head, a hunch as to what costs the most,
0: but I'll I'll let you as the expert. Um, tell healthcare, us. healthcare. One point yeah. two billion to healthcare. Yep. And if you think about it, our our healthcare system is completely reactive. Um, we we don't invest hardly anything into preventative healthcare you know, where it's completely reactive. um, So that's part of the problem. Um, Then we've got 560 million in costs attributable to crime, 473 million to 591 million in intergenerational costs. Um, So this is an interesting um, figure. I recently talked to the researchers of the poverty costs report and I got them to explain to me, what do you mean by intergenerational costs? And um, basically, they said that you know, if kids are poor, their parents are poor. Is kind of the idea. Um, so, the methodology behind the poverty costs is that the people who are who ugh, I'm going to explain this in the wrong way. Um, people in the bottom 20% tier of income make up the bulk of our healthcare costs. So, in theory, if we raise people's income, we could save money. And so that's kind of how they got the figures for this poverty cost report. And so in theory, there's a certain percentage of of kids who will remain in poverty as adults. Um, So what they did was once they got that figure, you know, they assumed that if they could raise the incomes of those kids above the poverty line, it would result in those people not ending up in poverty as adults. I was just going to say, I've read some
2: studies that show like it is quite challenging for people in the bottom fifth or the bottom quarter or whatever, however you want to break up the the system, that it's very challenging um, from them to be, if you're born in one kind of income bracket, it's, it's very likely that you will stay in that income bracket for the rest of your life.
0: I've heard that too, and I don't know, I haven't looked into it too deeply, but um, but it reminds me of one of your other episodes that I was listening to about millennials and how we might actually be worse off than our parents. (laughs) Um, I don't know if that's related to what you were talking about, but that is interesting to me as well.
2: Yeah, no, it kind of all goes into this one big vicious circle
0: (laughs) (laughs) the way I see it. (laughs) Yeah, but it's true. Like the ability, um, to get ahead just just seems harder. I don't know. I keep thinking about my dad. Um, He is a truck driver and he didn't graduate from high school and he was able to support my mom and my brother and my sister and me on a truck driver's salary. Um, You know, they bought a house and, you know, this was in the 80s. And I always tell my dad, I'm like, there is no way that you could have done that now. He's like, oh, no, like that's impossible to do now. Like the those days are gone. Like you can't support a family on that kind of salary anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this uh, the sixty six thousand that you came up with mm-hmm. in terms of what a living wage would be. Mm-hmm. You you would not qualify for a mortgage at that at that income. There is not the housing prices do not match um, median incomes or or anything like that. So we've just oh, gone wow. so far and away. Um, yeah, I was working on uh, a calculation for somebody with a 60,000, 70,000, um, family income and there's, unless it's a mobile home, um, or a very, very small condo with very, very low fees, it's not happening.
0: Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. I didn't know mm-hmm. that. Or it
1: would be very, it would be very difficult. You'd have to have a very large down payment to get into your average priced home. So right now we have like 400,000, it's probably going to go down a little bit. Um, but yeah, there's the, the affordability in terms of getting into homeownership oh, is, man. it's a crisis really.
0: Yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah. Um... I was on a panel about like housing as a right uh, at the beginning of September and I started learning about like the marketization of home ownership and how it's seen as this like investment instead of like a human need and that's why um, having a home is just so out of reach for people and this is why um, you know builders and developers are not building affordable housing and it's like it was just it was disappointing but it also made me realize like why we're in the situation we are in today with regards to housing but ugh, we're getting off topic
1: yeah, yeah we are let's go back okay uh yeah i do tend to do that okay so we know how much poverty costs us at this point yes. um before we move on on how we might fund that What's the human impact of poverty? Since I, I was just hoping to, to glean a little bit from your experience as a, a social worker.
0: Oh my goodness! I guess I keep thinking about. So I worked at Cups for many years, helping people transition from homelessness to housing. And I remember um, working with these young moms. Um, you know, they're living in the shelter. They finally got their own place, and they're happy. Um, but man, is it ever hard. You know they're they're on income support, Um, so they're getting maybe eleven hundred dollars a month. Most of that's going to rent, so they have to use the food bank, and you know they just they spend their days, you know, taking a train and two buses to get to the food bank, and then they got to take their food bank camper back to their house, and um, just the struggle that it is to do simple things that the rest of us take for granted, and. Yeah, their strength and resiliency like is inspiring, but it's also really sad because, um, you know, I'd be on the phone with their income support worker because they've been on income support for a year, and they're being told that they need to get a job, and so we're trying to figure out how, what kind of job are you going to get? You know, they, you know, most of them maybe have a high school diploma, maybe not, and it just doesn't make sense for them to work and be able to pay for childcare, but they don't have a choice. Um, because they're going to get cut off from welfare at a certain point if they don't, and so like I don't know, like that—that's just a story that I that I just wanted to paint for you because it's, um, you know, people think our social safety net is working, and it's it's not. There's so many holes in it, and um, when you work as on the front lines with people like that, you realize. This is why I became such an advocate for basic income, because I'm like, my God, you should just be able to do your taxes. And like we have enough um, and there's a way to pay for it. And it just makes sense that we give everyone the income that they need to meet their basic needs. It's not a panacea to ending poverty. There's many more things that need to happen. But boy, oh, boy, would it make a difference. And, you know, I just don't want to see any more moms struggle like that with, with their kids and kids growing up like that. And. know i just you know i don't want to hear any more stories like that is really what it is Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and and i thank you for for bringing that up because i think there's an idea of what poverty is Mm -hmm. and i think we have an image of it in our heads Mm -hmm. and we don't realize that it's it's actual people that are exactly like us with family dynamics with everyday struggles um and we are putting additional burdens onto people who are exactly like us, mothers with kids, yeah. fathers, children, um, yeah. you know, and friends too, right?
0: Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And they're exactly, they're just like us. They're just, they love their family. They, they love their friends. Um, you know, they want to be able to go out for a coffee <laughs> just like we do, you know, they want to have a little bit of a social life. Um, yeah that's what it is for sure.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Um, so how much would, if we could provide a basic income guarantee for all of those people um, that are like the person you spoke of um, taking mm-hmm. two buses and a train um, to just get to the food bank, if we could give them a, a, a basic income guarantee How much would that cost um, the, I guess, above average Canadian?
0: Well, it depends on which proposal. There's different proposals for how to fund a basic income. And some of them actually don't cost us anything. Um, There's actually one for Alberta that I'll quickly go through. Um, So we actually partnered with the School of Public Policy on a research report titled An Alberta Guaranteed Basic Income Issues and Options. Uh, So Wayne Simpson and Harvey Stevens looked into the feasibility of a basic income in the Alberta context. And their proposal suggested they had a few different models. The more expensive option for Alberta was a total net cost of 6.1 billion annually. And this wouldn't necessitate new funding or an increase to income tax rates. It's simply turning non-refundable tax credits into refundable tax credits. Um, So I'll maybe go through which ones?
1: Wait, that 6.1 billion. Yeah,
0: for Alberta. If Alberta was going to do this.
1: For Alberta. Yeah. We, okay? Did we in Alberta not just see similar figures given somewhere else that was meant to create jobs? I think we did.
0: <laughs> Are you talking about a pi- pipeline?
1: I, th- I may <laughs> be talking about a pipeline. I may be talking about a pipeline. Yeah. I might cut that out. But uh, yeah, Ooh, that's interesting. Blasphemy. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> you did not criticize the pipeline in Alberta. Oh, no
1: one is allowed to criticize
0: the Mm-mm. pipeline.
1: Mm-mm. Yeah. We all have pictures of the pipeline in our houses.
0: Oh, it's my spaghetti. goodness. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Jeez. Moving, moving right along. Go through the the costs.
0: <laughs> yeah. So this one is a modest basically This is not one that I would prefer, but it's it's better than this is. It's better than the income source system we have now. So this would um, give you know for one adult they would get around six thousand dollars a year, and then for families with two adults they'd get nine thousand dollars a year. So forty percent of Albertan families would see their incomes increase as a result. Income inequality would also be reduced. So if the province were to implement this alone, the following tax credits would be deleted to finance the basic income. The basic personal amount, the age credit, the pension credit, the education credit, and the tuition and the student loan interest credit for a total of about $5.36 billion. If we, com- if we partnered with a federal government to do a basic income for Alberta, We could see a basic income of $13,000 for a single person and $19,000 for two adults. And this reduces income poverty by 44%. So, this would be a better option if if we were to implement this, let's just say. Um, According to the low income cutoff, income poverty would be decreased by 44% just by doing this. And again, it doesn't necessitate new funding or an increase to income tax rates. So, I think this is pretty feasible. Um, so that's that's one proposal. Um, basic, the Basic Income Canada network came out with a policy options report. And they costed a basic income of around $1,800 a month at $134 billion per year. That's a, that's a pretty big one. And this model is funded, again, from rolling in several federal non-refundable tax credits. Um, They would also make some progressive changes to personal income tax, Um, federal tax fairness changes. They would get 67 billion from federal tax fairness changes, which I'm a fan of. Um, They would make some changes to the corporate income tax rates, and then they'd get 41 billion from the provinces for social assistance income transfers. So that's how they would fund that basic income. And then the last one I'll go through was the parliamentary budget office reported um, that the cost of a basic income program that was modeled off the Ontario pilot would be about 76 billion per year. This actually decreases to a net cost of 23 billion once you factor in what the federal government already pays out in non-refundable tax credits. Um, so in Evelyn Forget's book, uh, A Basic Income for Canadians, she kind of breaks this down to like how we could actually pay for this. Um, and this model would be income tested as well. So this seems pretty feasible. 23 billion is about what the federal government already pays for the Canada child benefit, just to give everyone like a frame of reference.
1: Wow. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So
0: it's doable. It's, it's like people have thought like economists and researchers have thought this out. There's a way to pay for it. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And, uh, you mentioned, um, the the child's uh, benefit, mm-hmm. how would um, a universal basic income guarantee pair with our current benefits?
0: Um, do you mean income benefits or other progr- social programs and services?
1: Other social programs and services, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, or, I mean, just your view on it.
0: So we actually abide by principles. Um, So Basic Income Calgary came up with five principles to guide the design of a basic income program. And I I agree with all these principles. So the first one is is it should be unconditional and delivered to anyone who needs it, you know, falls below a certain income threshold uh, with with no eligibility criteria, the second one is it should be a step forward, which which means people should be making more on the base. People should be earning more on the basic income than they were before. So, for instance, let's say they were on disability benefits, you know, they wouldn't be earning less on a basic income. That's kind of the idea behind the principle of being a step forward. The third principle is it's part of a robust social safety net. So, um, you know that means that we're not gonna eliminate all other social programs. Um, You know, we still need minimum wage legislation. We still need regulations, you know. um, We might possibly need transportation. Although I think over time, we are going to see a decrease in need. You know, once everyone's making the income that they need to survive, they're not gonna need to go to the food bank. They're not gonna need to go to a lot of other charities that help people with crisis basic needs. So that's a good thing, because we don't we don't want we don't want people to be in crisis anymore. Um, it should be delivered individually, and then the last one, um, it's escaping me now. But anyway, that's just an idea of some, some of the principles. Uh, so the answer is no. It would we wouldn't want it to replace all other social programs, although we would see. Uh, I I would want to see it replaced by income support. I don't think we'd have a need for, we have a patchwork of income support programs right now on targeted income benefits. And it's ridiculous. I I say we just, a basic income replaces all of those. um, And then, but we still maintain other programs and services. Did I explain that right?
2: Yeah, no, that's really interesting to think about. So basically we're saying this is doable. Um, The cost of it is not much more than what the governments are already paying for some of these non-refundable tax credits or um, services or pipelines or whatever um, going on in provinces and countries. And um, overall, it would obviously decrease the impact of needing health care for those individuals and potentially needing other services that the government does currently provide
0: oh totally and just remember like how much we spend maintaining poverty justice services health services social services um, child welfare oh my goodness like um, this these are the costs we pay to maintain the symptoms of poverty which is what we're doing right now so you know people say oh we don't want a basic income it's like okay then you agree to pay for all these things like we're i look at it as we're paying either way we might as well pay yeah. to keep people out of crisis cuz we're paying either way and
2: and why not be preventative right like we yeah. the argument is usually made from a health perspective like you should go see your doctor once a year so that you can get on top of things i mean you know, um, the cancer societies have done a great job mm-hmm. of encouraging people to be preventative and get checked and stuff like yes. that. Um, so why we don't do that with um, poverty when it's impacting our healthcare system, I think is is kind of silly, to be honest.
0: Yeah, and I've, I've heard from so many doctors that are just like, if I could prescribe you a higher income, I would. <laughs> oh, imagine that on a- yeah. <laughs> on a script i know and it must be just so frustrating for them because income is a determinant of health absolutely totally
2: so i guess maybe one final question before we kind of wrap up this episode but um last week we talked about the throne speech on the on the podcast um Mm -hmm. Obviously, both Tara and I were disappointed to not see any mention of a universal basic income. Um, I'm not sure. We, we a couple of weeks ago we interviewed Leah Gazan um, on is it Motion 41 Forty One or Motion Forty Six? Yes, Forty Six. And so that was a fantastic conversation. Um, but we haven't seen the Liberals push anything through and I feel like they would have NDP support at this point so Mm -hmm. I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on that or if you have any insight as to why maybe it wasn't mentioned or if it's Mm -hmm. dead or what do you think
0: (laughs) I sure hope it's not dead um yeah some of us we were having a conversation right after the throne speech and we um We kind of agreed that basic income has become a really polarizing issue. Some people are really for it or really against it. That could have been why it was left out. Um, The throne speech in general was very underwhelming, I thought, Um, and perhaps that was deliberate because Trudeau is trying to avoid an election. I found that very disappointing because this was an opportunity. Um, I don't know if you've heard the saying: an opportun- "A crisis is a terrible thing to waste." Um, you know, this was the prime time to, to fix a lot of holes in our system and do a lot of good for a lot of people. Um, you know, adjust recovery. This 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 could have been that time, and you know, I was really disappointed. So we are talking to some of our colleagues at the Basic Income Canada Network to see what their insights were about throne speech and where basic income sits. And uh, what we were told is leadership at the NDP, surprisingly, and the Liberals, uh, they're actually not a big fan of basic income. They're they're quite a big fan of the status quo. Although their MPs are very supportive of basic income and uh, I think they're just having a hard time convincing their leaders to actually do something about it. There is one Liberal MP that supports Motion 46. I don't know, did Leah Gazan go into that? No, she didn't. So there is one Liberal MP that um, supported that motion and we're really hoping that he brings it up uh, when the Liberals are um, having their big conference and uh, they're deciding on which policies they're gonna prioritize. Are, Are we allowed to know his name? Yeah, his name is, it's on the website. It's like Nathaniel, uh, his name is Nathaniel Erskine-Smith and he's from Beaches, East York. He's the MP from Beaches, East York. Okay. But yeah, he's, unfortunately, there's just one Liberal, but we're really hoping he brings it up at the conference, which has now been postponed until April. Um, You know, we really hope that the Liberals make basic income a priority. But it's gained so much support um, across Canada that, uh, we're really hoping, um, we're really hoping that the, the leaders of these parties, you know, take notice and aren't afraid to be bold.
2: Yeah. I think like Leah, you know, when we interviewed her, there was over 30,000 signatures on this basic income motion. I don't know what the number is oh, at now, wow. but, uh, like at some point it's kind of like, how can you ignore this? Right. If you, if, if there's that many people, um, agreeing and actually taking, there's a difference obviously between agreeing and, you know, going to actually sign a motion. So mm-hmm. exactly.
1: Yeah. That's, uh, that's some disappointing information. Cause you think the, um, the leaders of the respective parties would be listening to the MPs who represent the voices of the people that they yeah. represent, mm-hmm. obviously, mm-hmm. if we're looking at um, representative democracy. Also, I like what you said about being bold um, because I I have to thank you for for your um, promotion of a, a universal basic income guarantee. And for, for everyone else who's been advocating for this for quite some time, Um, to get it into the public conversation, to get it into the public discourse, um, and it's, you're welcome, yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm so happy to hear people that are interested in learning more, because I feel like there's so many basic income myths out there and I just, that's one of my favorite things to do is like debunk the myths. (laughs) And, uh, you know, at the same time, I'm still open-minded enough to realize that like, I still don't know it all and I'm still learning about basic income, but I'm always happy to share what I have learned. And I'm also open to learning more and having an open mind and hear what others think too.
2: Yeah, and I think that's the important part, right? Like regardless Mm -hmm. of what policy or what, um what we're talking about um on like on the podcast or in life or in general, I -hmm. think, you know, having that humility to realize that you're not always right and that there is the ability to learn and it doesn't make you a bad person for changing your mind on something. God, that frustrates me.
0: (laughs) Totally. And I wish our leaders were more like that you know, mm-hmm. I wish well, they need be- some more
2: women in there. I think before uh, that's going to happen Oh my goodness, for another
0: episode, right? <laughs> exactly.
2: Exactly. <sighs> well, thank you so much for um, sharing all of your knowledge on this episode of the pink tax podcast. Um, why don't you share it where people can find you?
0: oh sure uh, my email is just lee at vibrantcalgary.com um, you can also go on the website and uh, find me there uh, vibrantcalgary.com
2: and there's tons of great um, articles and research on the website um, I know I had shared some links with Tara around um, the poverty cost reports and Calgary's living wage reports yeah. so if you're interested in checking that out um, definitely go take a look at some of the metrics and research that um, Lee's team has put together. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you so much, Janine and Tara. It was so nice meeting you. And this was so much fun. <laughs> Gone, thought I lost my mind.
1: week's episode let us know what you think on facebook twitter and instagram the pink tax podcast is recorded in the treaty 7 region of southern alberta
2: our music is provided by Margot. you can find her work at noisebymargo.com sound editing by peter dobson if you'd like to support the pink tax podcast you can make a donation at liberapay.com pink tax podcast and submit a five-star review on apple podcasts